The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Right? Think about that. Um, you might think, well, a strong cup of coffee, an alarm, right, with seven different settings, with seven different volumes and seven different songs, and then the last one's, right? You might think that. Um, maybe it's just a basic need to use the restroom, right? You can fill in the blank. Uh, as you get older, that one will be more to the top, I promise you. Um, those things get you up in the morning. That's not what gets you going in the morning. That's not what motivates you in the morning, right? That's just kind of what like pries you out. So, so think about it. What is it that motivates you each morning to get out of bed? Some, it's achieving personal goals, right? You have goals. I hope, I hope you have goals, right? Hey, you're a college student. You should have some goals. Get out of bed. Go to school. Learn. Do the thing. Don't just spend money, right? Maybe it's honing a particular skill, right? Maybe it's passions like running, which I don't understand, but it's good. <laughs> it's all good, right? Gardening. Um, like even if a bear's chasing me, I'm not running. I know I'm not going to outrun it. I'm just going to be out of breath. I'm going to save my energy for the fight, right? You know what I'm saying? Make yourself big and hope they leave. Uh, maybe it's gardening, new opportunities, I don't know. Maybe it's being a good role model for, for if you have kids or for people that look up to you, because whether you know it or not, people are looking to you, whether you realize that or not. And so what am I representing here? I don't know. On and on. But as you might guess, Jesus' disciples, they need some motivation after last week, right? As we were looking at Jesus telling them, listen, you know, Peter's like, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one. He's like, I am. That's true. And he goes, and so if you believe that, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to you know, pick up your cross, and I want you to follow me. Well, where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die. But in three days, I'll be resurrected. This is a totally mi different mind shift than what they might have been thinking, right? So they probably need a little bit of motivation, because this is that's wildly different than the king they thought was coming. They thought the king that was coming was coming to crush Rome, right? And, and they're like, we can get all about that. We remember David and all the stories. We're pretty excited about you making Israel great again. Let's go, Jesus. And he's like, yeah, well, we're going to do that. But it's going to look a lot different. So now they're wrestling with what does it mean to follow a crucified Messiah? What does it mean? This is different, right? So Jesus... He does this to us, too. He's always keeping us a little off-center. I got you figured out. Eh, maybe. And it'll just bump you a little bit. And now you're a little off-center. And it's like, oh, there is more to you than I ever begun to understand, right? He does that now. He does that now as we continue in uh, Luke chapter 9. If you remember last week, uh, the last two verses, 26 and 27, I'm going to read them to you again because I told you we were going to tackle this statement. You remember that? If you were paying attention and awake. I said we were going to tackle these two sentences because we didn't have time to do it last week, but they flow so perfectly into where we're going. So look at me. Uh, look at the text with me. Luke 9, 26 and 27. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he, listen, Jesus, when he comes in his glory and the glory 
of the Father and of the holy angels. That's a pretty wild statement they have to be thinking about. But he says, but I tell you truly, listen, there are some of you standing here right now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, when you read that, I don't know what that does for you, but that has me ask a whole bunch of questions. Like, what, what does that mean? Right? Have you ever thought about it? I mean, if you think about what he's saying, there are some standing right now, not you, his disciples, those who are hearing his voice. Some of you are not going to die before you see the glory of the kingdom. Come. Whoa. What does he mean by that? That's a good question you should actually be asking. Um, this is debated by a lot of smart people, but there's four prevailing arguments. And I'm going to give them to you. And the reason I'm going to give them to you is because I think it sets up everything of what Christ is saying and where it goes next. One, there are people who would say that Jesus, by the way, this is a bad view, right? Ready for a bad view? That Jesus is mistaken, as it turns out. Right? He, he believed that the full consummation of the kingdom was going to come in its very near future. Uh, by the way, we're not a fan of this argument because it makes Jesus a misguided prophet. So we just don't like that. That's not a good idea. But there's th just three more. And actually, these are pretty good. How about this one? Jesus is referring to the reality of the kingdom in his resurrection and his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And you might say, I think that's exactly what he means. All right, well, you'd be in good company. There's another one, though, that Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Israel, well, the, the temple in AD 70, right? And, and that's a taste of God's judgment. That's what he meant. Maybe. How about this one? Jesus is talking about his transfiguration, hmm, which we're going to be looking at today, which was a display of his glorious kingdom and a promise that Jesus would one day come back in full glory. But here's a little taste that you can see my glory. I actually really like that. The first one should not be entertained. However, honestly, two, three, and four are all viable options for you to think about. Here's the point, though. Here's the real point that Jesus is pressing upon the disciples and so doing, pressing upon us. That in light of everything, the arrival of the kingdom, all that Christ has done, all that will happen, it's madness to continue living as if this present world is all that there is. It's just madness. So much more than the trivial things that we do day in and day out and, and generally fret about. So let me ask you a question. Do you need motivation <laughs> to deny yourself? Do you need motivation to pick up your cross? Do you need motivation to follow Christ? If so, I think Jesus is going to give the disciples in that moment and in that time some real motivation. And in doing so, he's going to give us some real motivation. Right? So let's, let's jump into it. Uh, for our text now. So let's look at 28 through 31. So it says, now remember, this is all one continuous story that Luke's telling, right? And he's, he's giving Theophilus a reason to anchor his hope that what I'm saying is true, okay? And so here he goes. He says, now about eight days after saying these things, the things we just looked at, he took Peter and John and James and he went up on the mountain to pray. Pause. Over and over, Luke continues to hammer home that when Jesus goes to pray, he always does so. And, and right after that, something truly stunning happens. Jesus is always seeking his Father. Absolutely, that's true. This time's no different. But he goes and he, he removes himself from all the chaos. I've had people tell me, I just don't have time to pray. You don't have time not to pray. I, I don't care how busy your schedule is. 
you are not busier than Jesus. <laughs> Everybody's looking for him. Heal me. Hey, could you take my little lunch and feed my whole family? I got a big one, right? And all these things. And he made time. He made prayer. He made that a priority. And every time he did, something stunning would happen. And here it is. And as he was praying, listen, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. By the way, Matthew, the gospel writer, mentions that his face began to shine like the sun. <laughs> this is it's pretty wild, right? Like, this is a wild thing. If, you're, if you and I are praying and your face begins to glow like the sun, I don't know what I'm doing, but it's probably, I'm out of there, right? This is, this, like, this is crazy. So his disciples, there they are, they're praying. And behold, ready? Two men were with him. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory and spoke. Notice who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Uh, the, the word there is exodus. They're talking about Jesus going to the cross. They're talking about Jesus resurrecting. They're talking about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Okay, this is, this is a little wild, right? I, I mean, seriously, think about what's happening here. Seeing that Moses died about 1,500 years ago. Maybe that'll help you, right? You're praying your buddy's face begins to glow. Okay, that's weird enough. But now somebody from in history just appears. There they are, right? Okay. By the way, Elijah, he had went to be with the Lord about, let's say, 800 years prior to that. And there they are. And, 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 and they're there in glory with Jesus. That's some motivation. Let me ask you a question. Why Moses? Why Elijah? You might not even be asking that question, but we should ask that question. I mean, like, why not, why not David and Isaiah? Right? Why not Abraham and Jeremiah? Well, there's a few possibilities. And I, thought, I started to think, like, what are some of the possibilities? One, Moses and Elijah both spoke with God and had a big encounter with him on a mountain. And here they are again, and they're on a mountain. Could be that. Uh, both had been shown God's glory, which that was not the norm for everyone in a physical manifested way. Both had famous departures from the earth, right? Moses died on Mount Nero, uh, which God buried him in a grave that no one else knew except for him. Elijah was taking up to heaven in like some, you know, little Escalade moment, right? He had some horses and a carriage and flames and there he goes. Okay, maybe it's that. Both were expected to return before the end of the age. There they are. Uh, Moses was a great lawgiver. Elijah was the great prophet. So you have the law and you have the prophet, right? Which represents the Bible, the Old Testament, their Bible, right? Both experienced rejection by Israel. And actually both, man, they were a powerful summary of the Old Testament. But they also, neither one of them actually finished great. And there they are, in glory. I love the fact that they, neither of them finished great, and there they are in glory, right? Because some of us make the mistake, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. And if that's the case, you ain't going to be with the Lord. Because none of you are that great. And I put myself in that category. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. God is great. And there they are. Why? Because God's a promise keeper. He promised these men. That you'll be there. And there they were. And, and they're there with Jesus, and his face is shining. This is crazy. It's crazy. And, and now it continues. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. I love how Luke writes, right? He, 
Get in. He's, he's, he's revealing. They were tired. Oh, but Theophilus, before you start thinking, well, maybe they were having like a dream. No, 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 no. I want you to know that when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter says to Jesus, listen, he says, Master, it is good that we are here. <laughs> Gabe responds exactly how I think that response deserves, right? Well, no, duh. <laughs> right? This is, this, nothing probably needs to be said here. Jesus, I just want you to know this is good. This is good, man. I'm glad you guys, you brought us up to the mountain, right? You're big three, right? Notice that, by the way. Why didn't Jesus bring everyone? Is he not inclusive? Like, he left some of the other disciples down in the valley. He said, you guys, let's go. Peter, James, John, let's go to the mountain. What's going to happen there? We're going to pray. Oh, okay, another prayer day. Woo, boom, lightning boy. And now we got Moses and we got Elijah. This is good. It's good we're here, Jesus. Thank you. And then he says, let us make three tents. Let's go camping. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. By the way, he's, there's no doubt in this moment, Peter's longing for this moment to last as long as possible. Right? Just can you imagine it, right? It's a little, let's just have a little camping trip. Could we just hang out? Let's tabernacle. I really got a lot of questions from Moses and Elijah. I never thought this day would come. I can actually ask them. They can tell me about all the stories. You may not gather that because you may not have a real understanding of the Old Testament. And if that's you, that's okay. I'll tell you, when I first began to follow Jesus, I didn't even know what the Old Testament was. And I don't say that to be funny. I didn't. I actually had no clue. And so people would say, turn to the book of Numbers, and I would be very confused by that. They would use language with me that I didn't understand, but I wanted to know right? And so, but, but I can't get into all of that, but let me tell you right now, a Jewish boy now become man, would, this has been a pretty stunning day, right? I, m- most of my analogies are sports, right? So let's, let's fast forward a thousand years, and there you are, and you're hanging out, and Michael Jordan's there, right? And, and you love basketball. Basketball is your favorite thing, and you get to ask him all these questions. This is bigger than that, it's a lot bigger than that. That's a silly little thing. But like if they would have had action heroes, like heroes of faith action figures, they definitely would have had Moses, they definitely would have had Elijah, and they definitely would have been having a great day on the mountain. <laughs> if that helps. It's good we're here. And, and, and Luke says, not, not even knowing what he's saying, he's saying, let's, let's build some tents. Luke continues, and as he was saying these things, listen, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud saying, listen, before I get into what it says, all through the first nine chapters of Luke, everyone's saying, who is this? Demons are saying, this is the Holy One of God. This is the Son of God. Angels at his birth announcement saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. You've got people guessing, well, I think he's like John the Baptist or some other great prophet. Peter confesses, yeah, he's the Messiah. But, but here's the thing. God's saying, this is my Son. My chosen one. Listen to him. He settles the debate once and for all, right now. He, Peter, you're a little unsure whether you got him right because he's saying he's going to be crucified. Well, my father's going to tell you. And he tells him, he says, this is my son. 
This is, the, this is the chosen one. This is the one you've been longing for. Listen to him. And when he had said this, when his voice had spoken, listen, Jesus was found alone. Alone. And they kept silent. And no one in those days, no one in those days anything, told anything of what they had seen. Finally, Peter's quiet. This is a, this is a humbling moment. Now, here's the thing. The transfiguration of Christ is, is deeply rooted. There's so much Old Testament stuff going on in this text. And, and I was like, how did I even approach it? Because I know many of you really well and well enough to know you don't have an understanding of the Old Testament quite yet. And that's okay. And I don't want to be preaching over your head because that does nothing good for you. But there's no way to get around it on this text. So I'm going to do really... I want to do my best. Maybe you can be praying for me as we work through this because what I want you to do is I want you to be able to see that God's glory is a big deal in Scripture and therefore it's a big deal to us as God's people at For the City Church. But, but I don't want to just talk up here in the stratosphere. So you're going to have to really pay attention today. Right? So if you went to bed late last night, it's going to be hard for you. <laughs> right? But you've got to pay attention. Ask God to help you. I mean that. We have a very living God. I think sometimes we just think prayer is something we do and nothing else is working, just to check it off the box. God will help you. And so ask Him to do that right now as we look. Right? Why? Because defining God's glory is really hard. <laughs> right? Imagine trying to define it in one sense. In an academic level, maybe. But define the word beauty. It's hard. Without pointing to something, right? Like, that's beautiful. That sunset's beautiful, right? That person's beautiful. This is beautiful. That is beautiful. But you don't have anything to point to. Like, it's not a basketball. Just define beauty. It's tricky. God's glory is very similar in that way, right? When you start to try to put words to it, it becomes very difficult. So I got some help from my friends. My buddy John Piper, he said this. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Okay, it's a good sentence. Um, it helps a little bit. The Gospel Coalition says this, the glory of God is the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, the grandeur of his many perfections, which he displayed in creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. I like that. I got some real meat on that. I can think about that. So you might be still struggling. Well, what's that mean? Well, so the Old Testament gives Tons of, of moments of where God's glory was manifested. And they could see, right? Uh, here, here's a word for you, Shekinah glory. Um, not in the Bible. But theologians use this word to help us understand the visible presence of God. Because God the Father, you can't see God the Father, right? It, but he, he veils himself in this cloud. And Jesus now is the glory of God, and even that's veiled. To people because they could not see it. But in this moment on that mountaintop, Jesus is pulling back a little bit of the curtain so that you can see his face begins to shine, right? He's not pulling it the whole way back. Why? Because they would die. They would die. And you're like, was that real? Is that in the Bible? It is in the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. Um, so, so it just it causes to, to dwell in. So let's take a little survey of the Old Testament. Ready? In the word of glory. Glory. Okay, glory. That's how you say it. And where do you say that, Kev? 
Texas. Maybe? I don't know. So how about, how about this? Where do we first see God's glory in a manifested way? Actually, it's in Exodus 13. You're not going to have time to keep up, so don't even try. Make notes if you want, and then follow back up later. But the pillar of God's glory is seen when, when Israel's fleeing Egypt, right? And, and they're headed for the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, God shows up in, in, a, in a pillar, that's a cloud, and at night it's fire, and begins to lead God's people through the wilderness, right? I'm going to give you very quick snippets of this, so just try to buckle up, hang on, you'll get there. So that's in Exodus 13, 21, and it says this, and the Lord went before them, by day a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light. Why? So that they might travel by day and by night. So think of God's kindness here. The, the cloud protects them from all the sun, right? The fire, so that they could have warmth and so that they could be led. But, but this is His manifested glory that's leading them. And they're pursuing God. They're pursuing His, Lord, His glory. How about then when Moses experiences God's glory in a profound way? Uh, it's found in Exodus 33 and 34. You should take the time to read those chapters this afternoon if you've got nothing else going on. I think you really enjoy it. But, but what we see is... This is the second giving of the law. Why was the first? Why do they need to? Read the Old Testament and you'll find out that as Moses was coming down off the mountain, there was a lot of perverse craziness happening, a lot of idolatry, a lot of idol worship, and Moses gets angry and he Hulk smashes the first two. Okay? When, when he does that, though, he... he he's discouraged, and so he would go regularly into what was called the tent of the meeting. And he would meet with God, and he would pray to seek God. And so a, a pillar of cloud would come down and, at the entrance of the tent. And, and on one occasion, here's what it says in Exodus 33, 18 through 23. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses is discouraged. He's leading a rebellious people. It's hard work. Right? And he's like, show me your glory. Give me a reason. There's many times, at least a handful, where, where Moses is saying, just kill me. Just kill me. Just, I, I'm tired of leading these people. Allow me to die. Or he's saying, or, or help me to continue on. This is why he's asking for God's glory. He says, show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand as I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. And so he does. And, and, and so Moses was not able to see God's glory directly, or he would die, right? But even getting near to God's glory in this way was enough to make Moses' face shine. And he come down off the mountain, and, and people were freaked out. They're like, whoa, why is his face shining? And so here we have it right now. Jesus' face is shining, but this is different. It's way different. Why? Because Moses is reflecting the glory of God, right? Kind of like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Think of it that way. But it's not the sun. Jesus is the sun. He's the sun. He's not reflecting anything. 
It's emanating from him, from within. It's who he is. That's not who Moses is. And so this is way, I'm trying to, I'm reaching for language. It's way bigger than like a teenage girl going to the prom who's all of a sudden orange. You know what I mean, right? If you don't know what I mean, hang out with some teenage girls. You know what I mean, right? Like, I have a teenage girl. She don't look orange yet, but she might. And that's okay. God love her. It happens. That's not what we're talking about. It, this would be more radiant than staring at the sun, which I don't recommend. This is God's glory. Okay, but then we have the tabernacle glory. What's that? Well, soon Moses' radiance would begin to fade, and, and God would... He would have a two, two-fold succession plan, but he, would, but he would have the tabernacle, and they would go in, and they would have the Holy of Holies, and you couldn't go in there unless you were a priest once a year, and you had to bring blood. If you're like, I don't understand any of that, hang in there, right? But, but here's what would happen. This, this wasn't like some pop-up tent that you'd get at like Dick's Sporting Good. No, no, no. This is like a bougie tent right? You know, like glam camping, right? But it's even bigger than that, right? Because every fiber, texture, color, shape, everything was, was made with real thoughtful plan to show the beauty of God, right? So that you might understand. And so it says in Exodus 40, 34 through 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you see the journey? We're kind of going, we're kind of going. And now you have the glory of the temple, right? So God's people were like, it's not good that like our God's like hanging out in some tent, right? Like, why would that be good? Let's build him a big, big house. And they would call that the temple. And Solomon would actually get to do that, right? And the, the time finally came. And you can see that in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. I don't normally do this to you, by the way. I know. It's a lot. Hang in there. Next Sunday, we'll be straight bullet. But it sets up everything in Luke. So you, you just got to hang there with me. So as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, it says... Fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground of the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to God, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever." And Solomon knew that there's no way that this, this temple could hold God, right? He says in 1 Kings 8, 27, he says, But God will indeed dwell on the earth. But will God indeed dwell on the earth, he says? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So he knew. Solomon knew that God could not be contained by the universe. But he also knew that his glory was there. And that God was with his people. And it was obvious, but then as time would go on, it would be long, not long before the glory would, would leave. The glory would leave. Uh, Israel's history is actually a very sad history. Um, and it reveals that wicked men used the temple for their own glorification. It became about them. It did not become about God. And that was happening over and over. And so they had a quick fall from grace. Uh, it's, you know, it began with Solomon himself. It actually began with David before the temple was even built. But if we could go back way further, and it began with Adam and Eve. All right? And that was before Israel was even a thing. So it really began with Abraham. 
And we see this over and over to the point, let me tell you how bad it got. You had 70 elders in Israel who had their own idolatrous idols painted in the temple that they would go and bow down to every day to worship. Now you can learn that in Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10. Right? Well, what happened when that happened? Well, I'll tell you, it was a dark time and the glory of God left the temple. Left. God was not pleased and so he left. All of chapter 10 gives detail about this. So now for the next 600 years, think about this, there was not one, even though the temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, the glory of God in a manifested way had never been seen again. Until, until, do you remember in Luke chapter 2 in the light shone and all the angels show up and it like lit up to the shepherds? Remember that? And it said, the glory of God. Look, that's a little preview. But now, but now, you have Jesus. And his face is shining. And the cloud, right? This isn't just like, hey, some fog moved in. You're not hanging out in Maine, right? A cloud came down. And a voice from the cloud. What happened? God's returning his glory to his people. Why? Because they were finally worthy. No. Because Jesus had come to make a people worthy. Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's fully man. He came in grace and truth to reveal who God is to this people and to make a way for them to enjoy God's glory forever. And that could not happen. You should be asking, if you have understanding, why didn't they die? Why didn't they die in that moment? Great question, because Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In some way, in that moment, even before the cross had happened, he's protecting them. He's protecting them. He's now the mediator. We don't need a temple, guys. That's that's coming. He's going to talk about that over and over and over as we continue through Luke. You need me. He's the whole point. And this is what Jesus is laying down. So is this Mount Sinai part two? No. No, because Moses had reflected God's glory, but Jesus is. He's God. Jesus produces the unsurpassing glory of God. It emanates from him. It's who he is. He he doesn't point to God's glory like Moses does. He doesn't point to God's glory like Elijah does. He, He is the last prophet, but he's way more than that. He's God. And, and so point one, and it's the only point, Jesus is the new and better tabernacle where the glory and presence of God dwells with his people. Remember that Jesus' disciples were wrestling with this picture of Jesus as the Messiah, right? Well, this, this moment, this transfiguration of Christ is actually a sneak preview. He's saying, guys, if you will deny yourself, if you'll pick up your cross, if you'll follow me, this is where we're going. This is where we're going. They long to be with God. They're saying, oh, we are with God. You think every, they, I think sometimes we think they, they knew that. No, they, they, they didn't understand all the components, I promise you. He's showing them. But, but imagine how hard it would be to imagine the transfigured Christ on that moment, in that mountain, at that time, and now imagine him not long after as a disfigured, crucified man. You see how hard that is to 
to bridge. He's disfigured on the cross. He's transfigured on the mountain. It's very hard. What's the difference, right? Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' clothes, his clothing's radiating. His face is glowing, right? But on the crucifixion, his, his, his clothing will be drenched with blood. Whatever clothes are left. Because they would be divided, stripped naked, beaten. On the mountain, he's surrounded by Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John in splendor. And on the cross, he's going to be crucified by two criminals. Well, that's different. Here he's enveloped in a a cloud of God's presence. And his father's saying, this is my son. And I love him. Listen to him, right? But on on the cross, he's going to hang and he's going to be in utter darkness. And he's going to say to his father, why have you forsaken me? Here the voice of the Father is expressing delight in Him. There, Jesus will be forsaken by the Father. Do you get why it was so hard for them to grasp? This is nothing like they understood. It's completely different. Jesus has always existed, period, in glory with the Father. However, on the cross, Jesus is going to experience the Father's wrath. Why did Jesus do it? It's a great question. One, he did it first and foremost to glorify his father. And you'd be like, how is that even possible? Well, because God in that moment is showing his justice and that he's the justifier. Right? He's, he's showing his goodness, his grace, his mercy. But he's also showing that he does not idly look at sin and rebellion against him. And so mercy and, 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 and real serious Anger towards sin and sinners meet at the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, but he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Why did he do it? Well, he did it to glorify the Father. But you know what else? He he did it for us. He did it, I'm going to bring it real personal, for you. It's not primary, but don't think it's like secondary because I don't even like that language. I don't like that language at all. We shouldn't put the the two in competition. God the Father loves sinners so much that He sent His Son to die for sinners. Why? Just for His own glory. Yeah, but what's the most glorifying thing about this all? Is that sinners now can come and enjoy life with God. Why? Because it had always been His plan. It had always been His plan. God desires. He doesn't need you, but he loves you. And that's better than needing you. You don't want a God who needs you. That's pathetic, right? But he loves you. He loves you so much that what? You go to this length of giving his son to save you, to redeem you, to bring you, to enjoy what? His glory. See, the beauty of Christ is we get God. Oh, how many times we make secondary things main things, you know? And, and, and I do it too. Don't, don't, and if you're thinking, I don't do that. You do that. I do that. We do that. God, help me to see your glory. Because the more glory, the more beauty that you see of God revealed through his word by the power of his spirit, the more the, the things of this world lose their grip on you. They just lose their grip on you. 
Because you can't see all the beauty that God is and be worried about the fact that your house needs painted, that it consumes your thought 24-7. Now your house might need painted. Get it painted, whatever. But I'm telling you, when you see God's glory, you're willing to say whatever. Lord, I would follow you wherever because there's no life outside of you. And Jesus is coming to reveal that to these men but, but we're, we're past the cross. We're past the resurrection. We're past the fact that he ascended. We get to see that glory now in a profound way. That they didn't. The story is unfolding for them. But that's not where we live. We live now where we get to see all the beauty. All the beauty of the cross. All the beauty of the resurrection. And we get to see it from his word. So, so what do you do with news like that? What do you do with news like that? You don't have to guess. God says from heaven, he tells these three disciples, and in effect, he's telling us what to do then. You ready? Ready? This is going to be a big shocker. Big revelation. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Accept Jesus' word. When I say Jesus' word, I mean the Bible. I don't mean just the red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. Red letter Bibles might be helpful so that you can understand who's talking, but if you think that's the only words we're to listen to, you don't understand the Bible. We deny the fact that the red letter Christian, if you don't even know what that argument is, that's fine. But all of the Word of God, all 66 books, are God's Word. And He reveals His beauty in them and through them. And He shows you more and more of who He is. So accept His Word. Listen to him. What were they talking about in the Exodus, right? Well, when, he, when, when God the Father says, listen to him, what's he mean by that? Of course, he means everything. But I think it's way more than that. It's, it's, well, it's, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. He's meaning particularly the words that he just told Peter. What were the words he just told Peter? I'm going to a cross and I'm going to die. And Peter was having a hard time accepting that. He's having a hard time listening to that. He's wrestling with that. And God says, listen to him. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow him. Why? Because his death leads to your glory. His death leads to your glory. And, and man, think about how kind God is in this moment to help them see to help them see. And he's not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same God wants you to be able to see. He longs for you to see his beauty. Listen to him. See, the gospel is stunningly beautiful. And when I say the word gospel, it's the news of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. That's gospel, okay? Which is why God's glory in the face of Jesus is our fuel for obedience. I mean, really, why do you obey? We can unpack that in a lot of different ways. But Jesus says, if you love me, you obey me. And there's two ways you could hear that. There's the, if you love me, you obey me. And you, listen, you may hear it that way because maybe that's how your parents talk to you. But we're also, you can't always blame your parents for everything. As I get older, I realize that more and more. 
as my daughter blames me. Just kidding. <laughs> you hear it that way because that's your natural bent apart from Christ. We're a, we're a law people, right? I don't think that's at all how Jesus intended those words to come because he's talking to his disciples about abiding in him and he says, listen, if you love me, you obey me. You hear the difference? I'm, I'm saying it with a smile because I, I, I think that's exactly how Christ would say it in that moment. He's saying, if you love me, you have to worry about obedience. You, don't, you obey. Why? Because you love me. Right? I, I remember, man, my dad, my dad never had to tell me, hey, Scott, you know, when we go fishing today, I want you to put your hat on like I wear my hat. I want you to wear your jeans like I wear my jeans. I want you to wear the flannel like I wear my I looked identical to him. Why? I loved him. How do you tie that again, Dad? He would show me. I'd tie it exactly the same way. How, okay, once again, Dad, when that thing goes like this on the little rod and I tap my thing and I got a fish, what do I do? He goes, well, remember, you don't want to hurry up and do that. You want to do that. So I listened to every word he said. Why? Because I saw the beauty of my dad. I saw the beauty of my dad. Now, as time would go on, I would see things about my dad I maybe didn't enjoy. And I maybe wouldn't fall. But God's not like that. God's not like that. I have a great dad, but he's a fallen man, just like I'm a fallen man. But when you see the beauty of God, you will not need to worry about obedience. Obedience will take care of itself. The question is, do you see him as beautiful? Or do you just see him as some addition to your life? Boy, it'd be nice if Jesus would get on my game plan. If he would answer my prayers the way I see them fit, because I'm a good God. And he should serve me. He does serve you. How does he serve you? He serves you by giving his son to ransom you, to save you. That's beautiful. Why? Because you don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. Do you see him? Because if you see him, guess what? We don't have to talk about obedience. Oh, I'll follow you anywhere. Yeah, but what about loss? It's not about loss. It's all about gain. What do I gain? I gain you. And where you are, life is. And if that means I lose this, well, let it go. Let it go. Or will you continue to try to follow God by white-knuckling your life, trying to always have your way and get Jesus onto your plan so he can follow you? If you're there, confess that. Confess that. Why? Because God in his kindness, God in his kindness will not only forgive you of your sins, but he'll cleanse you from your sins, and he'll restore you, and he'll give you a right heart that longs for him. So ask him, God, show me your glory. Show me your beauty. And as I see it, oh, may I long to follow you. Give me that heart. Help me see. Do you see that what Jesus is doing in his kindness right here? He's showing these three men. And in, in so doing so, he's showing us. Jesus is the focus of the Old Testament. Jesus is the focus of history. Jesus is the focus of eternity. Jesus is everything. And the fact that anybody wouldn't listen to him just tells me one thing. You don't see him. You don't see him. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about perfect obedience. The only one who ever obeyed perfectly and will ever obey perfectly is Jesus Christ. But do you long to be with him? Do you long to know his word? Do you long to see him? I pray you do. Why? Because Jesus is a far greater authority than Moses and Elijah. 
Yes, Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. He did. And Elijah was one of the greatest prophets to ever live. But the father looks at Jesus and he says, this is my son. Not Moses, not Elijah, but Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they're faithful servants. But Jesus is my very son. Listen to him. I love it says when, they, when it's all said and done, Jesus is there alone. He's alone. As the writer in Hebrews said perfectly in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, said, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You want to know what God's like? Everybody's like, I wish I knew what God was like. Not everybody, but I have a lot of people say that. Get to know Jesus. Why? Because it's his exact imprint. Jesus says, if you've met me, you've met the Father. Jesus is God. So listen to him. Listen to Christ. Don't drift away in a sea of distraction. It's my encouragement to you. We live in a sea of distraction. Let, let me just ask you a quick question. And here's why I ask it. Because everybody's listening to someone or something. Everybody. You're being discipled. It's just who's the one making you, right? Uh, who or what are you listening to? I was talking with Jesse yesterday. I was like, who do the young folks listen to nowadays? <laughs> She's like, you should ask a young folk. I was like, yeah, but you're younger than me. So, you know, I think of like Oprah. You're like, who? I mean, I know she's still a big deal. But like Joe Rogan, I know a lot of young guys listen to Joe Rogan. By the way, I'm not saying don't listen to Joe Rogan, but is he, is he your picture of masculinity? Because if he is, you should really repent. Jesus is the perfect picture of masculinity. You know, Jordan Peterson. You can listen to these people, but are those the ones you're seeking to emulate and be like? Who do you listen to? Is it the latest person on TikTok? Who has your ear? I'm serious. Like, these are questions you should ask yourself because every person is shaping and molding you into a particular worldview. And, and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor's a jerk. is not popular. So I don't like that. I'll listen to this guy or this gal, and they'll tell me, ah, you don't have to love any of them. Love yourself. And you think, ah, I know, it's about that, that world. Boy, they really need to get their heads straight. I'm not talking to the world. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to those who profess to know and love Jesus Christ. Who's shaping your worldview? If it's not the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, Someone or something else is shaping your worldview. And it might have some Christian stuff in it. But is it, man, i got to love this person because Christ loved me while I was an enemy. And I warred against God far more than this person's ever warred against me. They just didn't mow their lawn well. I was so petty. Jesus died to save me while I was warring against him. I don't think they'll probably kill me if I invite them to the house for a burger. You might be surprised. Church, will we listen to him? Just a couple texts and then we're done. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to him. 
John 7.37, on the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he's talking way more than H2O. He's saying, I satisfy your soul. If you're thirsty, and every one of you, including me, we're thirsty. Where are you going to have your thirst quenched? Listen to him. Matthew 11:28 through 30 says, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Go to him. Listen to him. Jesus has the words of life because Jesus is himself life, and he is life abundantly. Listen to him. He's our only hope. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God revealed. Listen to him. May we live and seek to reflect the glory of God to this dark place that we live in. Listen to him. May God's glory be our motivation to get out of bed in the morning. That no matter what you do, may we, whether we eat, drink, sleep, whatever we do, may we do all things in a way that is for the glory of God because we're a people who have seen him, who listen to him and long to know him and be like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us your glory in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, the, the concepts that we're talking about here this morning can be pretty lofty in one sense, but in another sense, they're very elementary. And so you teach these things to children. And here we are, by God's grace, if we're trusting in you, we are your children. So teach us, help us. Do an amazing work in the hearts and the minds of your children today to connect all the dots to help us see more of your beauty. God, show us your glory. We ask this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.